danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's Hello and welcome to episode 340 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Owings Mills, Maryland, I am Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and by our guest, Fareed Jatin, or maybe it's Jatin, I probably should have confirmed that with him. Um, and Fareed is in Medellin, Colombia which uh, actually, well, he's from Barranquilla, but uh, he is Colombian. Um, he moved to the United States when he was 10 years old uh, to play baseball, actually. Um, and sort of, I mean, we'll obviously talk to him about this story, but, uh, you know, that ended up turning into a professional poker career. He's now an extremely successful uh, tournament and cash game player, more than $5 million in caches, plays on the uh, super high roller circuit, and uh, just a kind of very warm, charismatic, easy to talk to uh, guy. I think y'all will enjoy this episode. He's got a pretty unique story about uh, moving from Columbia to the United States and uh, making a life here, getting into poker, um, and uh, I mean, traveling the, uh, the, high, the high roller circuit. We'll talk to him about the kind of mental game stuff and other preparation that's required to participate at such high stakes, to maintain an edge, to be sure you have an edge at such high stakes. Uh, lots of interesting stuff to talk to Farid about. Uh, I enjoyed this interview, and I believe that you will as well. Before we get to that, I'll have a strategy for you. And our strategy hand is coming to us from Anthony. Anthony says, hello, long time listener, but first time submitting a question. I've been finding myself below five big blinds in uh, MTTs lately, which I abhor playing because I don't really think I'm very good at overcoming such a deficit. Nonetheless, I was value hunting and came across this spot. I wanted to know if you thought it was an ideal or at least an okay value call. I just got moved to this table, so I had no history to provide on the other players. I was in the small blind, and after paying it, I had exactly four big blinds left. Villain 1 in the hijack, who had 42 big blinds, opened to 2.2 big blinds, and Villain 2 in the cutoff shoved for 30 big blinds. The button folded, and our, our hero uh, looks down at 8-7 offsuit in the small blind. So action has been open for 2.2 big blinds, cutoff shoves for 30 big blinds, and now our hero is in the small blind uh, after posting the small blind. He has four big blinds remaining, and he has 8-7 offsuit. He says, uh, to me, villain two is just making a play. I've seen this three-bet re-steal 30 bigs in late position so many times it's become mundane. To me, it's usually a pair other than aces, kings, or queens. It includes Broadway cards, may or may not include ace-king, and some suited and unsuited naked aces. Um, if it's a bigger hand, I think he three-bets smaller. Um, I don't really factor in the big blind other than the chips he already put in, but against villain two's range, I'm better than two to one against to win. Uh, equity calculator shows uh, that I that our hero would have 36.7%. Um, and, you know, depending on the range that uh, we put the villain one, the original razor on for overcalling, um, at least according to the range that uh, that he gave that player, our correspondent, uh, Anthony, 
says that he still comes away with uh, 28% equity, even if Villain won uh, over calls behind him. So the question is, you know, given this action so far, given that he already has half a big blind committed, he only has four big blinds remaining, should he, you know, put in the last four with 8-7 offsuit? You know, is this a good enough spot? Uh, By his calculations, he comes out with about a half a big blind in EV, and he's wondering if that's the best he's going to do. So he said, uh, should I be looking for bigger values somewhere else uh, in this below five big blind zone? I don't know. It seems like it's sometimes hard to find any value spots, let alone good ones, when you're running out of hands to actually play. I'm also wondering if folding here and moving in on the next hand on the button with whatever cards I have, if it hypothetically folded to me, would be a better spot. Um, so I think, for me, first off, I think it's great that he's considering this spot. I mean, I think this is a mistake that a lot of people make when they get short in a tournament. Um, I think people are too concerned about the cards that they hold. Like, I think there, there's there's sort of two mistakes, and he's avoiding them both. I think one mistake people make, some people just give up, you know, when they get down to, like, they only have four big blinds remaining, and they just throw it in with whatever hand they get. I mean, if you're a recreational poker player and it's not fun for you to play a short stack and you'd rather either, you know, double up or go do something else, um, you know, I could see that making sense for you. But if your goal is to maximize your expected value in a tournament, um, you know, your last couple of big blinds are your most valuable big blinds, right? Because, uh, I mean, this is a basic principle of tournament poker strategy. Every chip that you add to your stack is worth less than the chips that you already have. So what that means is that, you know, if we think about a a 40 big blind stack and we think about it in, in chunks of four big blinds each, right? So 10 chunks of four big blinds. Uh, every time you lose four big blinds, you're losing some value off of your stack. But, um, you know, when you, when you go from 40 to 36 big blinds, you don't lose 10% of your stacks value, right? Because those, those last four big blinds are your least value or the, you know, the, the, the first four big blinds you lose are the least valuable. And the reason they're the least valuable is that they do the least to threaten your survival, right? In, in a tournament, the value of your stack is some combination of, uh, you know, like the chip in the chair, right? So your chips are worth something, but your chair is also worth something. And as long as you have at least one chip, you still have a chair, right? You still have a fighting chance in the tournament. You still have some chance of like squeaking into the money with a short stack or, you know, laddering at the final table. So, I mean, this is a bigger factor the closer you are to any kind of bubble situation, but it's always true in a tournament to some degree. Your survival is worth something. And that means that the last of your chips are, um, are worth the most. Right? So your last four big blinds are your most valuable four big blinds, and it makes sense to try to invest those well. Um, now the way that so that that's one error that Anthony avoids. Anthony avoids the error of just kind of giving up and and flicking it in with whatever two cards he's dealt. Like he's clearly trying to find a good spot, and that's important because there actually are a lot of good spots to be found with a short stack. Um, I'll come back to that point in a second. The other error that Anthony avoids is uh, waiting too long for good cards. Right? When you're very short, the value of a spot does not come primarily from the value of your cards. Um, you know, I think too often people, when they're short, they they want to they want to go out on a good hand, um, and so you know they they won't take an appropriate risk when they get like a decent but not great hand like a i don't know king six offsuit or something you know they they don't want to risk the last of their chips with king six offsuit but then they get a pretty looking hand and then they just ignore the action in front of them so i mean how many times have you seen a player has like 
12 big blinds and he has you know i don't know maybe not even 12 has eight big blinds and then uh under the gun raises and our hero is holding like ace nine offsuit in middle position i think a lot of people just stick it in there because they're like well ace nine is probably the best hand i'm gonna see you know with eight big blinds remaining i'm probably not gonna see a better hand than ace nine okay that may be true but um the value of a spot is not just the quality of your hand and you know jamming ace nine into an under the gun opener like you're just not doing that well against the under the gun opener's range you might be better off you know waiting even if you have a less good hand waiting where you can be the first player into the pot instead of you already got a player who's showing a lot of strength by raising under the gun even if you have to go through the blinds again you're still likely to find a better spot than just you know jamming with ace nine into an under the gun open just because your cards are kind of pretty so it's not just about having good cards but you also um you don't want to just you know give up because you're short and and stick it in with anything so i think it's it's great that anthony is you know looking here and trying to see you know is there value in calling off in this spot and if so is it you know a good enough spot to risk the, the last of my chips or you know could i expect to find a better spot by folding and um and, and waiting to come around. So there's a few other things that Anthony, before I get to the actual stack, there's a few other things Anthony said that I want to address. You know, one thing he said is um, he feels like when he has fewer than five big blinds in a tournament, he's not very good at overcoming such a deficit. Well, I mean, no one is, right? <laughs> like if the average stack is 30 big blinds and you have five big blinds, you know, you're not a favorite to win the tournament. No one, like no matter how good of a player you are, like Phil Ivey is not a favorite to win the tournament. He's not a favorite probably to cash, depending on how close he is to the money. Like that's a big disadvantage. Um, so it's not about overcoming a deficit. I mean, it's just about making the most of what you have and trying to make the most high EV play that you can with your remaining couple of big blinds. The good news is when you have a short stack, this is the point I promised to come back to, when you have a short stack, it's actually quite easy to find good spots. The reason for that is that being able to get all in is actually extremely powerful. It's risky, of course. I mean, you, you get eliminated often, but it's very powerful to be able to get all in um, because it guarantees that you get to realize all of your equity. Like even when you're dealt a bad hand like 8-7, and this is part of what our hero is, is recognizing here, even when you're dealt a bad hand like 8-7, there's a decent chance you're going to end up with the winner. I, I mean, the reason you don't usually end up taking a hand like 8-7 offsuit all the way to showdown is that it's too expensive, right? You have to call a pre-flop raise, you have to call bets after the flop just to find out whether your, you know, whether your hand turns into a pair and whether your bad pair is any good. It's usually too expensive to try to contest a pot with these cards. Um, but when you're shallow, it's not expensive. <laughs> when you're shallow, there's a lot of money in the pot, especially when you're playing with antes, as you usually are in a tournament. There's a lot of money in the pot, and you know you really don't have to risk that much more to you know take your hand all the way to showdown and find out whether it's good. Um, and as Anthony recognizes, he is in fact getting pretty good odds in this spot, and these spots come up fairly often when you're shallow in tournaments. And this is the other part of the reason why it's so important to. Um, to think wisely about how you want to invest your last couple of big blinds because there actually are a lot of good opportunities to invest them. And the mistake a lot of people make is they conflate, um, you know, I'm probably going to get eliminated with it's hard to find a good spot. Um, those two things uh, are not incompatible. Like, and it is true that you are probably going to get eliminated. That doesn't mean the spot is a bad one. The reason it's a good spot is because the times you don't get eliminated, you win a very large pot. You might you know, triple or quadruple your stack and you know, some of these, depending on, on the, the spot that you get into. So even if you do get eliminated like two times out of three, if you quadruple your stack when you don't get eliminated, like that ends up being a pretty good spot for you. I mean, when you have five big blinds in a tournament, you're probably not going to win the tournament. So it's not about finding a spot. It's not, it's not about finding a way to 
um, to, to win the tournament when you have five big blinds remaining. It's about giving yourself the best possible chance. The best possible chance is still not great, but um, it is it is a good investment of, of those chips. And I think that Anthony has, in fact, found a, um, a good spot here. Uh, I mean, I think just I mean, his one question was, is having an edge of you know half a big blind if 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 his calculations are are correct and you know I don't know exactly what ranges he used for these players to to double check it but they sound reasonable you know if if his range is correct here for for getting in against villain two or even if villain one overcalls it still ends up being a decent spot for him you know is that a big enough edge is winning half a big blind uh, enough and yes absolutely it's it that's a huge edge um, half a big blind in EV would be the equivalent of 50 big blinds per hundred as a win rate um, you know a good win rate would be somewhere in the neighborhood of like 10 big blinds per hundred uh, on average like that's you know a, a top player is probably winning somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 big blinds per hundred hands played so if you, you know if, if there's a particular play that has an expected value of half a big blind in EV that's winning you 50 big blinds per hundred hands that's huge especially when you only have five big blinds remaining. So yeah, that's a great spot. And I think you absolutely want to take it. You know, the other question of like, well, what if I just fold and I wait until you know, the next hand and it folds around to me on the button and I can just jam all in with any two cards. Um, that often ends up being a pretty good spot if you can get it to fold around to you on the button, but that's far from a guarantee. I mean, you like... Part of the like, so it's it's true that folding folding is going to have a positive EV um, because you're going to get to play future hands. You're a long ways away from the the blinds, so you wouldn't want to just take a spot that has an EV of like plus point zero 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 one big blinds, right? So some like tiny fraction of a big blind that probably wouldn't be a good enough spot to risk all of your chips. And this is what it means to say that survival has value because even by folding, um, you're going to get like when you fold here, you're going to get to play you know maybe seven more hands or you're going to get to get dealt seven more hands and you will probably be able to find some sort of plus EV spot in those seven hands. I don't think you're a favorite to find a spot that's worth half a big blind in EV. So yeah, if it folds around to you on the button and you get dealt halfway decent cards, you know, I, even then, I mean, I don't know that you have an EV that's really greater than half a big blind, but um, even if you do, that's quite a parlay, right? I mean, there are some hands that even with four big blinds are not good enough to open jam from the button. Like if you have seven, two offsuit, unless your opponents are making a mistake in the blinds, that's actually not a strong enough hand to shove there. Um, and you know, again, like it's not that likely to fold around to you on the button. Um, all of your opponents in front of you have a lot of incentive to to raise first. So, I mean, if you could be guaranteed that you were going to be the first one into the pot on the button next hand, that might be worth waiting for. But that's not a guarantee. It's very far from a guarantee. So, yeah, I mean, I think you you absolutely do want to take the spot. And I want to talk a little bit about what makes this spot so good. Um, essentially, what's happening here is because villain two has made this big shove. So, a reminder: the action was we've got villain one opening to two point two big blinds, villain two shoving for thirty big blinds, and then the hero has eight seven offsuit in the small blind, and he's got to call off four more, four more big blinds, and, and he's all in. Uh, so, the really nice thing about this is um, villain one is probably going to fold, <laughs> and the big blind is probably going to fold. I mean, it's not quite like. I mean, I think Anthony just sort of dismisses the big blind entirely. Like, there's always a chance the big blind is dealt kings or whatever. But I mean, the big blind is not very likely to call. Even villain one is not terribly likely to call. There's a good chance there's going to be a lot of dead money in this pot, and that's because villain two is taking a huge risk, essentially on your behalf. <laughs> you know, he's he's forcing other players to risk thirty big blinds 
if they want to go to showdown, and this is the power of you being a short stack, you don't have to risk those 30 big blinds. You only have to risk four big blinds. So other players are going to get pushed out of the pot, even though they have a better hand than 8-7. Even though they know that their hand is well ahead of your range, they still can't, you know, it doesn't make sense for them to pay 30 big blinds to contest against villain two's range just to you know, try to beat you <laughs> or, or you know, even knowing that they're getting like subsidized by the fact that you're going to be sticking it in with quite a few hands here, including eight, seven offsuit. Um, even knowing that villain one still can't really justify with a lot of hands that he might hold, you know, if he has queen jack offsuit or something like he can't really justify paying another 30 big blinds. Um, you know, he's just, he's not going to have enough equity against villain two's range. So you're benefiting from this protection. It's much like when a player, if you're all in and then a player bets into a dry side, pot. it's basically the same thing that's happening here. You know, that player is taking a risk. You're benefiting from the risk that they're taking. They're generating fold equity against other players. Both you and villain two are benefiting from that fold equity, but only villain two is paying for it. So you're getting like free fold equity from villain two. Um, you're, you're, and then that's why you can stick it all in with so many hands here. There's going to be a lot of dead money in the pot quite often. You know, we don't know for sure that the big blind run of the gun one are going to fold, but um, there's a good chance that they will. And so you're getting this like free or subsidized fold equity. And so there's quite a few hands that you can you can stick it in with in the spot. And you know, as I've said, I think it's it's good to recognize that. You're not supposed to be a favorite here. You don't need to be a favorite. Um, it's You're probably going to lose this tournament no matter what you do because you only have four big blinds. But I think that sticking it in here gives you the best possible chance of winning the tournament. Um, it's good hand reading to consider that villain one... You know, to be able to make a conclusion that like villain one probably doesn't have aces, you know, that's a good thing to think about. It definitely improves your, your EV if he doesn't have the biggest pairs because... Um, so like results, villain two, so the, uh, villain one does fold, big blind folds, villain two has king queen offsuit. So villain two is like a you know small favorite against eight seven is a very good spot to end up in. Um, but our hero does lose. Uh, and but you know eight seven has has perfectly fine equity against king queen offsuit. Eight seven's not doing so well against like pocket tens. You know the the big pairs, a, a pair that's um, sevens or larger where it dominates the hero's uh, cards, then the equity is not going to be so good. But um, especially if you feel confident saying that the the villain probably doesn't have those biggest pairs, like being able to take aces, kings, queens out of his range, that does a lot to improve your equity. Honestly, though, even if we put aces, kings, queens in his range, it's probably still profitable to get it in with 8-7 here. Um, so I think that's just like icing on the cake to conclude that... Um, that he probably doesn't have those hands. I think this is a, a, a very good spot. And I think in general, this is something you want to look for when you're all in or when you're short stacked is, is there an opportunity for me to get all in and benefit from fold equity that another player is paying for? So when you see action that's like raise three bet and you have a very short stack of, you know, just like, and there's a big difference between like 10 big blinds and three or four big blinds. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily want to do this with 10 big blinds. That is a pretty big risk to take. But with only three or four big blinds, you're getting a huge subsidy from the money that's already in the pot you're getting great odds and you're benefiting from the fold equity that that uh, player in front of you is creating with their re-raise and um, often you know almost regardless of your cards or with any like remotely decent hand you can justify um, putting the rest of your money in and I think that the 8-7 right here is a great spot to do that 
thanks very much, Anthony, for uh, writing. I hope this was interesting for folks. I think it's a really important tournament skill and an underappreciated tournament skill. Underappreciated because, as I said, you do often lose the tournament despite making a good investment here. And so I think a lot of people dismiss the importance of this spot. But in fact, investing your last couple of big blinds well is extremely important. So thanks again, Anthony, for writing. Uh, other people, if you would like to hear your hand discussed on the show, you can write us podcast at thinkingpoker.net. If you are interested in hearing more strategy from us, be sure to check out nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. We are going to have a Black Friday sale on, so for the final week of November, starting November 27th uh, and running until December 4th, we're going to have 25% off everything in the Nitcast store. That means 25% off of the eBooks for Play Optimal Poker and Play Optimal Poker 2, 25% off of the Weekend Warrior and Weekend Warrior Tournament Edition podcasts, 25% off the Exploiting Small Stakes Tournament videos uh, that I made with Carlos Welch, 25% off anything that you want to get out of the Nitcast store. And you can get that at www.nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. Please enjoy our interview with Fareed. So are you are you are you usually uh, playing online or mostly live or the apps? I mean, what do you? Um, yes, I was playing. I was playing pretty much exclusively online until 2011. Like I really didn't have much interest in live poker, and then uh, since Black Friday, I started playing um, mostly live. And then now the past year, I've gone back to <laughs> playing exclusively online with all the um, all the COVID stuff. So yeah, it's been kind of kind of back and forth but i guess at this point i'm really more of a live player than an online player yeah same here um yeah i don't really like i don't know if i really enjoy the online life you know what i mean like it's like it's a bit uh take takes over you a bit you know it's it's a bit too much Maybe yeah. we could talk about that in the in the podcast i'm sure it'll yeah come I, I think that'll be uh, good yeah that'll be a that'll be a good topic Looks like he's uh, here now. I just tried to add him to the conversation. Let me see if that worked. Have you been doing a lot of podcasts lately? Yeah, we've been doing this since um, we started in 2008, Third. I think. Maybe 2009. Um, or no, that's not right. 2011. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, Nate. Hi. I think it's 2012. 2012. Yeah, so we've been doing it for eight years, not since 2008. Um, but yeah, you. This will be episode 340 for us. Wow, that's amazing, man. I kind of want to do a, a podcast myself, actually, uh, with my brother. You know, I, I think uh, I think it's kind of interesting, you know. But I, I don't really know how to how to get around. I haven't really dedicated enough time to look into it, you know. But I think it's I think it's pretty cool. I think it's a interesting thing to to put us some positive things to the world you know i think uh, most of the news that we hear nowadays are is negative and stuff like that so it's nice to have different things in, in the podcast that kind of like pumps you up or kind of like brings you up if you're having a bad day that type of vibe you know yeah i i agree i mean it's 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 great it's been a great part of my life i mean 
and and the world's a big place like what we do is a pretty niche thing it's like long form poker podcasting with a lot of like literature discussion and other stuff and the strategy discussion is pretty high level for for poker media but like we've got our audience now a lot of that is andrew is a coach and andrew has his own audience and like so so that that helps but you know the world the world's pretty big and it's not that hard to find you know, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, twenty-five thousand people out of eight billion to 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 care about what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you're if you're sending some some good messages, you know, like yeah. something something good to to hear. Because a lot of it's a lot of a lot of bullshit going on, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, okay, should we begin? Yeah, honestly, you know, like I said, I I did uh, start recording already. If, if you're okay with us using that, I think we can just kind of uh, roll into it. We'll, we'll record a little introduction for you off the air, but I'm happy to just kind of uh, you know continue on with this topic for a bit if you're up for it. Oh, perfect, perfect. All right, go ahead. Um, yes, I was going to say, well, first off, I mean, I'd be happy or I'm sure we would be happy to answer uh, any questions. I mean, we don't have to do this part on the air, but um, you know, if, if you're serious about wanting to start a podcast, I'd be happy to talk to you about them. It's, it's really fairly simple. Um, I know it's like I'm the same way. With, you know, It feels like a lot to kind of get off the ground, but um, I think if, if you wanted to do it, I think it's probably something you could start doing uh, pretty easily, and I'd be happy to help you however I could. Um, but yeah, I mean, we... I, I often tend to sort of worry, especially with us just doing like poker kind of exclusively. I, I used to be more involved with the volunteer thing that I'm not doing as much of anymore. And um, I do sometimes feel like, uh, you know, it was just really like the best thing to be pouring a lot of my time into. But uh, it does make a difference to people, you know, just like you said about uh, people having a bad day or being able to uh, uplift people or improve people's mood. We hear a lot from people who have uh, sort of tedious jobs, uh, you know, long distance trucking or uh, stocking shelves at a store stuff like that where um you know people really appreciate having access to some kind of um stimulating uh entertainment oh yeah and i always really appreciate people like you guys you know that really want to provide a bit of value to the world you know especially in poker i think that there's not enough of that you know i think a lot of times we're we're more focused on where's the value you know what's what are the best tournaments like where's the money at how can i make the most money but we're never really thinking about like how can I provide a bit of value, you know, to the world or to the community or to the poker world, you know, and, and it's something nice to think about. It's something nice that there is people like you guys doing this. And, and I really appreciate people like you. So, um, yeah, I'm very, very happy to be here. Very thankful for the invitation. And, um, yeah, let's get going. Yeah. So the, um, one of the other things that that was one of our goals in, in starting this podcast was to want to provide a more, um, balanced or, or nuanced view of what being a professional poker player really looks like you know that it, it, it's not just all uh strip clubs and i don't know what else you know, what, what ideas people have but you know kind of trying to show a, a picture of like what does it actually look like day in and, and day out so i mean can you talk a little bit about what um i guess we'll start with the, the beginning of your career like how did how did you get started in poker in in the first place I and mean, even before being a professional just how did you get started playing poker yeah, basically in high school, you know, I used to play baseball. That's actually how I moved to Miami. I'm from Colombia originally. And um, I moved to Miami when I was about 10 years old to play baseball. Um, I went to a summer camp and the coach actually ended up liking me a lot. You know, I was, I was only 10. I mean, it's not that serious, you know, but I did take it very serious. 
And uh, he, he thought I had a lot of talent. So he said, listen, like, why don't you move to Miami? And um, you could start traveling around, you know, you could start traveling with us, playing some tournaments. And that was like my dream as a kid. So my grandparents were already living there. And I kind of told my parents, I was like, listen, like, I really want to stay here. I mean, I, I know you guys can't really come over right now, but I, I'm going to make this move. Like, I want to stay here. I mean, I had my grandmother in public school and uh, she set me up pretty much. So it was up to my parents whether they were going to let me or not. And it was like kind of like a tough decision. But like back in Colombia, it was a bit dangerous at the time. And uh, sorry, what, yeah, we what year was this? This was, uh, well, I was 10 years old, so it must have been in 98. Okay. So this was 1998. And uh, so it was, yeah, it was a bit dangerous in Colombia at the time. And actually, my grandfather had gotten a few threats that they were going to kidnap uh, my family and stuff. Because it was, it was a lot of mafia going on. And actually, my, my grandfather was like the best plastic surgeon in the, in the region, you know. So he was, he was doing pretty well. But... Uh, so my parents saw it as a, as a fresh start, and they, they were like, you know, it's a good opportunity for us as a family. So they ended up letting me, you know, stay and, and play baseball and, and kind of like, that was my dream, you know, to be a professional baseball player. Obviously, I was only 10 years old, but, you know, it kind of shows you how, how serious I was taking it. Um, so we moved over. They, they took about almost a year to get there, so I was, I was with my grandparents Actually, it was a pretty tough time in my life, you know, because I had to grow up very fast. I was going to, I went from going to a nice private school in Columbia to now going to a bit of a rough public school in Miami, you know, where I was exposed to drugs right away. I was like, people like making fun of my accent, kind of like racism a little bit. And, and uh, you know, as a kid, that's not that easy. And I'm, I'm the type of kid that I don't really complain. I didn't want to complain to my parents or to my grandparents because I was like, if I complain, they're going to send me back to Colombia. <laughs> right. And then uh, I'm not going to be able to play baseball, you know. So for me, baseball was like my, that escape, you know. But it was a bit rough to, to, to handle because I had to eat it all, you know. So it was a bit rough, but I mean, it, it kind of makes me who I am. And, and I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't have it any other way. But that was pretty much the beginning on, on how I moved to, to Miami. So then, yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a rough time where... We started, I have a brother and a sister, younger, both of them, I'm the oldest, and we started all five of us in one little room, you know, so that's how we all started in Miami, it was like basically starting from zero, so we all started, I mean, my parents are both doctors, but when you get to the States, they don't accept your degree if you're from uh, a Latin American country, so they had to revalidate the degree, and while they were studying, they were like, my dad had like three jobs at a time, so yeah, it was pretty, pretty rough, you know, but the fact that I never really saw like my dad or my mom really complain about it kind of like gives me like that, that attitude that you got to have to, to, to become a, a poker player, you know, because in poker, it's very easy to complain. You know, it's very easy to focus on the bad beats and focus on everything that's going wrong. So you kind of need that attitude and that example. And, and I'm very happy that my parents were able to give me that, you know, because it was very rough. I mean, just imagine being a doctor and now getting to Miami and having to, my dad went as far as deliver a newspaper, you know? So that for me was like, I even, I used to go with them some of the time at like 4 a.m. to deliver the newspaper. And that for me was like very life-changing. You know, I think that 
a lot of us don't really go through these experiences and a lot of us kind of like take life for granted, you know, and, and, and yeah, I think that we should be a bit more thankful as a, as a whole, you know, because I think that nowadays I, I feel like people are complaining way too much, you know, they're not really, and I know it's a rough time. I mean, especially this pandemic and all that, but I don't think that we're, we're ever really focusing on on the positives, you know? So I think that, yeah, I, I think that we shouldn't really be taking life for granted. I don't know what you guys think about that, but. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, obviously it's similar, like with the pandemic, there's a lot that one could easily complain about. And I know a lot of people, you know, have, do you know have legitimate things? I mean, I've been pretty fortunate in that regard that I can still like work from home and and whatever else. But um, just like you know the the last really big pandemic we had in 1918, so about 100 years ago. Like how much nicer it is to be going through that now when we have like the internet, for instance. <laughs> I mean, imagine having to do this quarantining stuff without the internet. It'd be crazy. Yeah, I mean, like honestly, it's like everyone has had a different experience, you know, and and. I don't really judge anyone at all, and and I know that a lot of people are going through a rough time. I mean, just imagine being like a restaurant owner or like all these businesses that need people to come to them, and, you know, that's very tough. That's very tough for sure. But I mean about like everybody complaining about the little things, you know. I think that, yeah, we should we should start focusing a bit more on, on the positives, you know, and, and and we need people like that, like that, that tells you to – really look at the bright side of life because i think that especially like the news the media everything it's it's a bit of a dark world you know and 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 it's kind of sad to see that's kind of why i'm i'm not really too active on on watching the news or or really you know too active on social media i mean now nowadays i'm a bit more active cuz now I, I actually like you andrew i started coaching you know so i'm a bit more active and and um it's been going pretty well, you know, because I'm like I said, I'm I'm trying to put out positive messages and people are responding pretty nicely. So that's that's been pretty good. Good. So how did how did you come around to poker? You you came to the US, you're ten years old, you wanted to play baseball. What what happened with the baseball career? Yeah, so I ended up playing baseball. Um I ended up doing pretty good. I, I ended up winning a state championship in high school and I got a scholarship to college too. I was playing baseball in college and that's when I got into poker at the end of high school. Actually, like I was a catcher back then and the star pitcher, which uh, he almost made, he almost made the league. And uh, it's crazy because I haven't really been able to, to find him to get in contact with him. He doesn't really have social media or none of that. But anyways, he was two years older than me. He, he failed the grade a couple of times and he loved poker. So he was a, he was a really good friend of mine. And then that's how I, I kind of got into poker was through him, you know. We used to go to the casinos and, uh, well, first we used to play little house games at his house. So I started kind of like liking it right away. And I started kind of like winning consistently where it was like either me or him were winning like most of the tournaments. And so then we started like, we stepped it up a bit and we started going to the casinos a little bit. And I got a little fake ID. So we used to go to the casino and play like one, one, two limit or something or some, sometimes like a $40 tournament and, that's kind of like how I got into it, never too serious. But I remember when I was like 16 or 17 that I won a tournament for like a couple of thousand and then I ended up buying my, my first car, you know, which was a, it was a geo prison. It was all crashed and stuff. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget that. And uh, I actually bought it for my grandmother. So that was pretty funny. Um, 
so yeah, that's kind of how I got into poker. Then when I got to college, um, playing football, because I used to play intramural football too, playing football, like someone dislocated my shoulder really, really bad to the point where I needed surgery, but I didn't really want to get surgery. So it kind of like, yeah, I think it kind of like, that was the, the point where it kind of messed up like my baseball career, which in a way I'm kind of thankful for because a lot of times in baseball, like, or in professional sports in general, you dedicate your whole life to it and you don't really make it, you know, it takes a lot of dedication and I don't know that I was good enough to make the league, to be honest. And um, yeah, so it was kind of like I was already looking for, for something else to do. And I was studying engineering, but I also didn't really want to work for anyone else. So I was like, let me let me give this poker thing a shot. You know, it was like kind of like the poker was booming. Everybody was playing poker all the time. All the tournaments were huge. So it was like, yeah, it was a good opportunity for me. So I started playing a bit more serious. I started taking it a lot more serious. And uh, I remember there was a time where I had like, like a $2,000 row around there. So I took a shot. I've always been a, a big risk taker. So I took a shot at, at the local casino. They had a $900 buy-in. So I said, I'll put half the row on the line. You know, what's, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> and, um, and I ended up chopping it for 40000 So that was like, that was the real start of my career right there. Wow. Ah. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of crazy. You know, I remember like I, I felt like 40000 was like $40 million or something. It was like wow, did I really just win this, you know, so the first thing, and my parents didn't really like the poker thing, because, you know, they're, like, like you were saying, Andrew, like, a lot of people nowadays, they have the wrong view on, on what a professional poker player is, so they're doctors, my whole family's doctors, and they know I'm, like, pretty smart, so they, they, they felt like I had better decisions to make as far as a career path, and I don't blame them for that, you know, because they know nothing about poker, so, the first thing I did, I got home and I said, Dad, like, I know you don't like this or nothing, but here's 10,000, you know, and, and um, <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna start playing a bit more, you know. So just so you know, I mean, here, here you go. I'm never going to need your money, none of that, but I'm going to take it a bit more serious. I'm, I'm still going to finish school, which I didn't. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, that's how kind of like I started. That's how I started. Did, did that change going. their view of it? I mean, when, when you came home with ten thousand dollars for your parents, did that, or just knowing that you would you would won the forty thousand, did that like immediately change the way that they thought about it, or did they still have reservations? I think it was like kind of worse, you know, because <laughs> my my mom was like, "Oh man, like I know he's gonna be hooked now for sure," and uh, my dad was cool about it. My dad my dad was super cool about it, but my mom was kind of worried for me and. Um, and, you know, I understand that. I mean, it's such a weird career path and it's such a, like, weird lifestyle, you know. And and at the, at the end of the day, I mean, they, they are correct to think that it's it's not the best career, you know. Like, I don't know that I would recommend it to anyone, to be honest. I mean, I don't, I don't know what you guys think. But, like, like, I mean, I think that people have a very wrong view of what a, what a good professional poker player's life looks like. But... It's still very stressful, it's still very swingy, still very like emotional, you know, and, and and I don't think that it's for everyone, you know. I think that the term poker pro is is thrown around way too loose, you know. I don't I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I, I think it's wrong for almost everyone, but it's very right for a few people. And um but like a lot of things are wrong for, for almost everyone. But um it, it's interesting what 
you said, like, I, I think that the people for whom it's right are the people for whom it tends not to be swingy and emotional. Like I, I, I would almost say if, if you think it's going to be a swingy emotional thing for, for you, uh, maybe you should find a different profession. <laughs> like, like a big part of, of what you need is to, um, handle the swings without, without so much emotion, but I guess it's worked for you. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't, I don't know if I agree completely because I think that it's emotional for all of us. You know, I think mm-hmm. that getting getting aced on the river with like five left in a tournament that pays a bunch. I mean, you know, it's it's very tough not to let it affect you and yeah. stuff like that. But like you said, I mean, there's there's very few people who are made for this. Like, I, I agree with that statement completely. I think that uh, but I think that everybody could do it if you really work at it. You know, I, I don't think that it's just for the people that have the talent or et cetera. I think that there's enough resources out there that, that you could actually make it if you, if you, if you're disciplined enough, you know, I think that that's the, that's the hardest part with poker is the discipline. I've always felt, and this is probably starting to get less true, but for a long time, what I used to say was that I think for aspiring professionals who don't end up making it as professionals, usually the thing that's holding them back is not, uh, a lack of card skill. It's not that they're not good at poker. It's really money management that tends to to screw people up. Um, both that they don't deal well with it when they're on a downswing, or you know they're playing outside of their bankroll or that kind of stuff, or they don't deal well with it on an upswing. You know they they get overconfident. They play bigger than they should. They spend money. They gamble on sports. You know, I, I think it's often an inability to manage the, the the financial and the emotional swings more so than you know they can't find the right check raising frequency or something. Yeah, I think I agree with that 100%. I think that uh, game selection, for sure, is, is one of them. I think that bankroll management, 100%. And like you said, I mean, it's like when you're crushing, you know, when you're when you're in a heater, I think that, yeah, I think that poker players are not, uh, not very smart with their financials, you know, in general. They don't really invest outside of poker. It's like, if I, if I'm on a million dollar heater, you know, all I, all in general, this is the mindset, you know, if I'm I'm on a million dollar heater, all I want to do is play bigger or back my friends and stuff like that. We never really think about like what business should I invest on for, you know, long term, what 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 stock should I get into, what crypto should I buy? I mean, just like the, diversify a bit, you know. And I think that we're getting better as a community uh lately, for sure. But it's still like yeah, I think we need a bit more of financial intelligence, you know, and 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 that that goes along with the emotions, you know. When you're winning, you kind of like you need to be humble enough to realize that. Listen, like you you might be running a bit better than you you usually are, stuff like this. So maybe you shouldn't play this 25k or 10k because you know you're a bit of an underdog. You know, you gotta you gotta kind of let the ego to the side, but it's very tough to do as a, as a poker player. So yeah, it's one of those things that it's very personal it's also like when you're on these times whether it's up or down you always got to think about the worst case scenario and make sure you could handle it you know because if if i take a shot at a 25k and i know that if i bust it's gonna kill all my momentum then i'd rather just not play you know and, and these are things that i don't think people think about enough when you're playing something like a, a 25k what percentage of the field do you think are playing more for for ego reasons than because it's like the best bankroll investment decision they could be making? Oh, that's a tough question. I mean, 
you know, I, I think I think like all the best players in the world, they they all believe that they have an edge on the field. So it's actually like, yeah, I don't think it's ego to the point where it's like, like I know I'm a loser, I'm a losing player, but I want to I want to battle with these guys because I know I could beat the best. Mm-hmm. I think that it's kind of like that thought where they all think they got a small edge, so like they just play, you know. And and also it's like it's kind of, it's kind of like an addictive little rush, you know, because like once you start playing that big, it's kind of tough to to step it down, especially if you're doing good, you know. So and they always find like the perfect excuse where like one recreational bought in, so they're like, okay, perfect, <laughs> that money, you know. So. <laughs> I mean, a, a lot of these 25 kids are very good, but but in general, there are some that are, like, super shitty. And, like, yeah, people still play them. Kind of like, yeah, you could say it's because of the ego, you know, kind of like let's let's prove who, who's the best and, and stuff like that. But I, I don't I don't mind that, you know. It's kind of like that 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 adds a, a, a nice little touch. As far as, like, as long as people are not going, like, bust with it, I mean, I think it's pretty cool, you know. I think it's good for the game. I think it's good for competition, and I think it's good for the fans, you know. I think that some of these televised uh, tournaments have been pretty amazing to watch, you know, including for myself. So, I mean, given, given everything that you just said, that it, it sounds like you think a, a substantial portion of the field playing like a 25K or something is, is kind of deluding themselves about having an edge. Um, how do you convince yourself that, that you are not one of those people like i guess do you do you struggle with that kind of like imposter syndrome idea or thinking like well, what if i'm one of the people who's, who's just deluding himself into thinking he has an edge no i think i'm very self-aware you know i think that uh before i buy into the tournament i know what kind of like what kind of likely outcome um i get into you know so a lot of the times, I'm not going to lie to you, I, I kind of force things and I get into a spot where I know I'm not really putting the money in good. But in general, I'm pretty good with these things, especially with the bigger binds, especially when it comes to live. You know, I think that poker, especially at the, at the highest levels, it, it, it has a lot to do with confidence and kind of like, yeah, I think how you're doing in the moment really affects your experience as far as for the specific tournament. You know, in general... When someone's like running good or everything's going their way or they had a couple wins and and stuff like that, I mean they're way more confident. Their bluffs are gonna get through a lot more. They're gonna they're gonna pull the big bluff on the river. They're gonna make that big call. And I think that yeah, I think this is a huge thing, especially when you're talking about the highest levels. And the same goes for when things are going south. You know, when when you're you're kind of on a big downswing, you're kind of like your confidence is a bit low. Then you're very unlikely for to do good in, in in that specific tournament, and that really for me it doesn't really lie. I mean, especially talking about personally, it doesn't really lie when I'm doing good, when I'm feeling good, and also like it, it has a lot to do with how your life is going. You know, am am I happy right now? Am I? Is everything good? Is my circle good? Is my is my energy clean? You know, I think that these are things that poker players don't give it enough weight. You know, I think that these are things that have a lot of weight and, and that we should really start paying more attention to, you know, because if I'm running bad, if I'm not feeling good, if I got in a fight with my wife today, then I should probably take the day off. You know, it's it's going to be there tomorrow, you know, but it's it's tough to do. I mean, and I'm a victim of it myself, but uh, I'm at least I'm aware of it, you know, and, and I know that it makes a big, big difference whether you're playing to enjoy the game to have a good time, to really like, 
you know, zero pressure where I'm playing a buying that, 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 that I could really afford, that I know I'm going to play super comfortable and I know I'm confident enough to make my moves rather than playing to get unstuck because of, I've been running bad for a month, but I can't pass up on this tournament. You know, I think that these things are very, very important when it comes to, to winning a poker and to being a, especially to being a poker professional because you got to be able to sit out when things are not likely to go your way, you know, I think that it's very, very important. Have you ever done that? I mean, where, where you were planning on playing a tournament, maybe you've even traveled to, to play a particular tournament, but just uh, you start running bad or like you say, you have a fight with your wife, Some, something comes up where you then decide, oh, even though I have already made some investment towards playing in this event, um, I think I'm going to make a last minute decision to not play just based on how things are going elsewhere in my life. Yeah, I've actually done that a, a few times, actually. Um, actually, in Bahamas, that was one of the ones that my friends were in, in the big poker player championship in the 25K. I got like I got six or seventh, I don't know, for like 750K. But I felt like I went out on a bit of a punt playing for five million. So my mindset was a bit fucked up at the time. And uh, I actually just left. I didn't really play the rest of the series. There was a main event going on, a 50K, a 25K. And I just left because I knew I was going to be a losing player for the rest of the series. Wow, that's impressive to come out even off of a big win like that to still um, recognize, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be at my best going forwards. That's uh, hats off to you. Yeah, I think that was... Uh, and I, I did it kind of easily. You know, I got to my room, I said... Um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a bit emotional at the time. I was on a bit of tilt and it's crazy to say because I just won 750. But, you know, my, my mind wasn't really there because I was playing for such life changing moment or life changing money that, uh, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm just way better off to sit this one out, you know. So I, I ended up booking the, the fly right away. I ended up forced, forfeiting like maybe five or six nights of hotel. In, in That's the an expensive Bahamas, hotel to forfeit too yeah, with the PCA. Yeah, it's pretty pretty expensive. But to my understanding, I probably saved about uh you know fifty to hundred k. So I think I did pretty good. <laughs> yeah, fair I, enough. I think I did pretty good with that choice. It's not easy to do, but like I said, I mean it's very important to be self aware and 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 it's all different. It's it's different for everybody, you know. Like a lot of people, they they lose right there. They punt it. And that kind of gives them a bit more hunger to go crush the main, you know. But for me, it was like, no, nah, I'm not really ready to, to, to grind it out from the beginning again. So I, I might as well just go and save the money. Is there an element to that of, you know, I just won 750K. So now playing an event with a 5 or a 10K buy-in is going to feel like uh, minuscule. It's, you know, I'm not going to be able to take it seriously because I just had this big win. No, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think it has more to do whether I played good or not at the final table. You know, if I would have crushed the final table and gone out in the same place and, and you know, I, I felt like I did nothing wrong, then I would have definitely stayed and probably kept crushing every tournament. But since that wasn't the case and I'm a bit uh, hard on myself, I was just like, man, like you don't really deserve to, to keep playing the series. You know, like you kind of... And, and to this day, I'm not sure that I... Like now that I look back on it, I'm not sure that I would do anything different. But at the time, it felt like like a bit of a punt, you know, because it was it was such life changing money, like I said. But, you know, it's all good. You you learn from these things and that's that's what kind of makes you, you know. 
I, I have to say I'm really impressed. One of the most formative things I ever heard in poker, uh, and it's also very relevant to life, I think, is Dan Harrington gave an interview. I think this was on TV. And he said that his edge over another player is bigger when they're both losing than when they're both winning. You know, he he loses less and he just he, he maintains his 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 edge over an inferior player like much, much better uh, in, in those contexts where he's losing. And I think some people like take that to heart and people, I think, have an easier time saying, OK, I'm losing, but I'm still playing well and I'm still going to try to play well. And I think people have a much harder time saying, like, okay, I just won a bunch of money, but, like, boy, I'm playing bad. <laughs> and like, that's uh, – I'm really impressed that, that that you can say that. Like, do, do, do you find that easier than, um, than, than the opposite, than, you know, like, like understanding that you can be playing well even when you're losing? Yeah, I think that uh... – yeah, for sure. Like I said, I mean, it's very, very important to be self-aware, you know, and, and kind of to know yourself. Because I think I have one of the best six cents in the game, and, and it includes, like I said, when I'm buying in, I know it when it feels right and when it doesn't, you know. So if, you, if you're if you stubborn with this thing, if you're stubborn and you fight it, then you're just going to dig yourself a hole, you know. So I've learned kind of to accept it and to to accept the signs and, yeah, just take it, you know, like – this is life telling you, like, yo, like, nice hand. You had a nice score, but time to go, my brother, because you're not really going to keep crushing. Like, I, I guarantee you that. So, yeah, I think that if we if we pay attention to that, especially when we're winning and are humble enough to realize that, like, even though you're winning, you probably ran a bit better than usual to get there. And, yeah, you messed up at the end. Like, your mind is not all there. And, yeah, I think these are things that pretty much – nobody does you know very few people and i think i have a way tougher time doing it online because it's so much easier to click it in from your bed or 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 when you're not really feeling good but there's nothing else to do and you kind of you kind of see a, a good tournament going on and i think i need to get better at it online for sure but live my live when it comes to live tournament selection i think yeah i think i'm pretty pristine with that as far as like paying attention to to what mood you're on how 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 your energy is you know because for me that's very very important you know what do you look for in in a live event i mean obviously I mean, we've talked about this stuff the the sort of mental game stuff but just when you're planning your schedule however far out in advance how do you decide which events are going to be worth playing well for me lately um i've been focusing on having like a balanced life you know so for me I pay attention to the destination, um, not only the tournament, but the destination, you know, so something like Australia, where I really love the country and has uh, all the big, big tournaments, like, like very big prices and big guarantees and stuff like that. This is kind of like my ideal place, you know, so I, I wouldn't really go to a place where I don't really like the place just to play for big money. I, I, I'm more of like, I want to be able to bust and go travel around and like kind of see the city and and just feel good, you know, be happy. So that's kind of what I look for, that combination where it's big price pools, but a nice, enjoyable place to go to. And I like to travel, you know, I like to meet new people, uh, see new places, like see new cultures, you know, and, and, and these are the type of things that being a poker player gives you that gift, you know, to be able to travel and, and kind of do both. 
so you mentioned that you're you're in Colombia now. Uh, is there or are you just there to to play online? Is is this part of your your poker travel? Yeah, I have a place here. You know, I I, I usually am between Miami, Colombia, and Panama. These are my three bases. I have three bases right now. Um, so I have a house in Miami, I have a place in Panama, and a place in Colombia. So I I usually travel around. I don't really like to stay too long in the same place. And you know, I have family in all three places, and um, yeah, I like to I like to spend time where people I have a very small circle, but a very nice one. You know, I, I really enjoy spending time with all of them. So. I like to split it up a bit. Have your parents warmed up to uh, to poker, or have they accepted it at least? Yeah, they definitely they definitely warmed up to it. Uh, they're they're definitely proud of you know where I've gotten, and they're very thankful. And um, yeah, for me it was always like actually for me it was never like a dream to be a poker player. To be honest, it was more like a means to an end. Like I said, it was more like I didn't really want to be my own boss and this kind of gave me that opportunity. But then I realized, you know, I had a, yeah, I had a lot of talent for the game, you know, so I've been, I've been able to really master the game to my own way, you know, my own specific way where I really haven't studied as much as, I could almost guarantee that I haven't studied as much as anyone in the 25 case and stuff like that, but my way of studying is more like I study at the table, you know, I kind of, I kind of try to understand why someone's doing what they're doing and how it makes sense. And then apply it in my own type of way, you know, rather than just plugging every hand into a pile solver or peel solver or, or stuff like that. I, I rather do it that way. And, and yeah, it's worked pretty well for me right now. Um, I'm studying way more uh, recently because like I said, I started coaching so I, I got I to gotta get very solid with my studying. But uh, it's, been, it's been going very well, man. It's been going very well. I'm happy. What does studying look like for you? I mean, is it, is it working with PO or, or what, does, what form does studying take for you? Yeah, I study a bit of the ranges, you know, with the range converters. I uh, study some PO and just talk a lot with, like, high-level players, you know, talk about spots. I think that that's probably the best form of studying is where you have two or three elite players breaking down spots and why they like what they like and stuff like this. I think that's pretty much the most amazing form of studying for me personally. Understanding that you probably don't want to give too much away, but is there anything that you could point to as kind of like a recent aha moment you know, where you something something clicked for you or something changed in terms of how you thought about a particular concept or spot? No, I think that uh, there's nothing specific, but one thing I could say is that I think the game is very robotic nowadays where everybody's just doing like whatever the solver tells you to do and, and they don't really, I think people forgot to like personalize poker, you know, I think people forgot to focus on my strengths, not what the solver tells me to do, but if I'm uncomfortable defending this big blind, why am I defending just because the range converter tells me to defend 100%? So kind of like focusing on your personal game rather than just doing everything based on the solvers or based on what you studied. Cause I, that's, that's kind of like the key to my coaching is I want to teach people how to think and not how to play because like I could teach you how to play a, a, a specific spot, but then what am I doing for you? You know, like if you understand the logic and then apply it to every similar spot, then I'm doing something for you, you know? So I think that, yeah, I think that one little advice is 
study for sure, learn what the right play is for sure, but realize that you're not a robot, you know, realize that you're a human and you got weaknesses and you got strengths. So focus on your strengths and avoid your weaknesses while you work at them, you know. So I think that, yeah, I think that's a pretty, pretty solid advice that I could give people that are trying to study but feel a bit lost. Because some of these tools can be misleading, you know, like a lot of times these solvers give you these answers based on the fact that everybody at the table is supposed to be a robot playing GTO, which is not actually the, 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 the truth, you know. So, yeah, I think it's, it's one of those things that you got to learn how to study because if not, it could actually be more of a negative than it could be a positive action. What kind of weaknesses do you feel like you see in, in other players, like spots where you think even if people kind of know what the ranges should look like according to a solver or something, places where, where people, I mean, you mentioned like defending the big blind, which I think is a good example, just places where people really aren't um, comfortable doing the, the kinds of things that maybe a solver would suggest doing? Yeah, I think that everybody's uh, everybody's pretty good at doing all the easy things or the or the basic things but what separates you know the the elite from the middle is like yeah just being able to pull that that big bluff on the river or or being able to defend your big blind comfortably and and perfectly you know because i think that yeah i I probably think that based on like all my students and stuff like that i think that probably the big blend is where people are losing the most money and they don't really they don't really even question it, you know. I think that people just defend any two nowadays and kind of get ran over. And, and that could be very costly, you know, when you talk about tournaments, especially when you get deep. I think that people bust a lot from their big blind or, or kind of leak away their, their stack because they're not playing it correctly. So I think that – I definitely think that's one area that people should should definitely work on is the big blind game. And then, you know, like the big – Big river bluffs or big river calls, I think, is is the other the other thing because these are the things that are super out of the comfort zone, right? Like when you when you have that that nut blocker in the river, but you know it's only gonna work if you if you shove like three x pot, and nobody's really comfortable doing that, you know. So they actually bet three quarters and they get called every time, you know. So yeah, I think that these these things are what separate you know the elite from the from the rest. I think a lot of people don't realize also, especially when it comes to using solvers for tournaments, uh, you know, a solver doesn't know that you're playing a tournament. Uh, a, a solver isn't taking into account any kind of uh, assigning any kind of value to your survival or having a particular stack size going forwards. And I mean, a lot of people put too much stock in those things, but they are worth something, right? I mean, they're, they're not entirely quantifiable, but a, a solver is just sort of saying like, well, if it's worth plus 0.01 big blinds, then, you know, go for it, shove every time. And, you know, that's probably not what you would actually want to do in a tournament for, for that small of an edge. If we're talking about a, you know, a three X pot river shove or, or something like that. Um, and I, I think I mean I imagine at the high roller level you know, people understand that concept, but I think there's a lot of you know reasonably good professionals even who are playing you know mid to high stakes tournaments who uh, if you know if they are as you say like robotically implementing um, solver things and not thinking about the fact that they're in a tournament, uh, especially you know late in a tournament that can where where there does start to be more uh, ICM kind of effect on on your decisions. I think you know, a solver can even easily steer you wrong even if you're perfectly implementing which no one is. <laughs> Even if you were perfectly implementing the solver-generated strategies, they're just like they're not assuming a tournament context. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think that people give it way too much weight 
and they forget to think about other factors because there is other factors like who I'm playing against, what type of player is he, you know, stuff like this. People kind of forgot to think about like poker as a whole. They kind of just, it's it's kind of funny to me, you know, I, I, I play like, I'll play like a $500 buy-in and it's very predictable because like I said, I mean, it's like very robotic, the game. So um, like I said, they're very good with the basics. The, the, the game is very tough right now. I'm not taking anything from anyone. But I think that, yeah, I think that the best are able to understand the solver or understand GTO, but they're able to put a twist into it, you know? They're able to kind of like let a spot pass by, but they're able to take a spot where it's not approved by the solver, but they know it's amazing for the specific moment, you know? So kind of like learning how to think about like, the spot that I'm in and not just doing everything solver base is, is going to give you a, I think a big edge, you know, moving forward, but it's, it's kind of tough to explain, you know, because it's, it's a very complex topic. Like, like I'm sure, you know, yeah. Are you going to play the, um, the, the new 2020 main event, the, the upcoming 2020 main event? Um, yeah, I'm definitely going to play it for sure. Uh, I'm just debating whether I want to play the GG version or the Vegas version. I think I'm probably going to go to Vegas because I think it'll be a much better tournament. Um, the GG will be bigger, I think, way bigger, but way, way tougher. I didn't even realize. So there, there's essentially two different fields, and then they're going to play down to a single final table? Is that the... No, it's two different fields. It's, it's crazy how they did it. I mean... But uh, it's kind of cool at the same time, I guess. Um, so basically, the GG is one tournament, right, where they play down to a final table on GG, and then the final table is played live in Rosvadov in the Kings Casino. And then the Vegas, the Vegas version is uh, another 10K, you know, which is a separate tournament. The final table is played at the Rio, and the winner of each tournament will play a million-dollar free roll. Oh, I, missed, price, I, I, I was missing some of these the details. That they, that they already won. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah so I, it's pretty I, cool, you know. It's, it's kind of interesting, but I mean, it'll never be like the, the actual main, you know, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think with that format, with the, the million-dollar free roll at the end, playing the smaller field would be pretty advantageous also, right? Like, you're much, you're much more likely to win in the smaller field and get to the million-dollar heads-up free roll. Yeah, and I can't really think of how much softer the vegas one will be you know like you got all the europeans all, all everybody that's amazing at poker and gg but you know in vegas and some of the recreationals will will play the vegas ones but they'll never really play the gg one so i mean i'm talking about the ones based in the states right because they can't right. really play gg but uh so yeah i think it'll be a much better tournament i could be wrong i mean gg has had some some amazing tournaments they had one yesterday that played paid like 800k up top for a 10k which is pretty pretty good, you know, and um, a lot of satellite winners. So, yeah, it's one of those things. But I think, yeah, I think I'm going to go with, like I, like I said, I'm going to go with my sixth sense and uh, go to the Vegas one. What are your thoughts on, on the format of that? I mean, of, of having the live final table and, and having the rules around, uh, I guess the really controversial one has been the uh, the you know, disqualification in ninth place if you test positive for, for COVID. What are your thoughts on all that? Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, can you can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh yeah, I mean, so 
uh, as you know, my details on this were a little sketchy since you had to fill me in on the entire GG side of things. But uh, my understanding is they're going to be testing everybody for assuming you make the final table, which obviously you will. Um, assuming you make the <laughs> final table to, to go play live, um, you're going to have to do a, um, a COVID test. And if you test positive, you get disqualified and, and you finish in ninth place. Like you, they don't even leave your chips on the table to get blinded off. That's. I mean that's so ridiculous. I don't like. I don't even know what to say, man. How does that even make sense? I don't know. Yeah, especially since the tests aren't 100% accurate. It seems like there's, you know, some chance you could get a false positive and you know sue them over. It's, it, I mean, I can imagine a lot of like potentially dicey I, scenarios stemming from this. I, I honestly think that like, you know, us as humanity are handling the situation very poorly, and it 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 it, it applies to this, you know. I, the way I tell my brother is, you know how sometimes we, in poker, someone that's not really knowing what they're doing, you know, we kind of call them a button clicker, right? So I think that all these governments and all these laws are a bit of button clicking. I think that people just, I don't know who's putting these laws and who's agreeing with, you know, passing them, but uh, some of them are so ridiculous that I don't, I, don't, I don't even know what to think. I mean, that one is just out of control, but... Hopefully, when I make the final table, you know, because <laughs> negative. I, I probably had it already. I think I had it already in Australia when it all started. So I might, uh, I might be immune. Who knows? What's the situation in um, in Colombia right now? How, how have they been handling it? Um, yeah, kind of normal, kind of like how everywhere. Well, not everywhere else, but like. Yeah, you got to wear a mask everywhere, and they take your temperature every time you go into a place. Uh, they make you clean your hands and stuff like that. I mean, pretty normal. You can still go out. You can still go to places. That, I don't know. Like I said, I don't really watch the news, like, at all. So I honestly don't even know what the laws are or stuff like that. I just know that I could do what I want to do. Like, I could go to restaurants. I could do this. So for me, I'm, I'm cool with it, you know. So as far as, as, far as that goes, like, yeah, I'm cool with it. Do you have uh, like goals in, in poker? I mean, are there like specific things you're trying to accomplish or just, you know, make as much money as I can, have as much fun as I can? Um, I think one goal is like, yeah, I think I would want to win the main event before I die. I think that's one goal that I have. And besides that, not really, man. I, I kind of just go with the flow. You know, I kind of, I, I enjoy being successful. Maybe like player of the year, one year, maybe. Um, I think I'm on my prime, you know, but I don't think that I'm going to be doing it for that much longer. Like I would say absolute maximum, like 10 more years, but probably way less, you know, because I do want to have a family at some point and I do want to be able to, to dedicate time to that and, and stuff like that. So kind of like, yeah, I guess my goal could be to make enough money where I could transition into other business and be pretty much comfortable for the rest of my life because I do have no, a bit of a high-end lifestyle, so I, I, it is pretty expensive. And, yeah, I don't think that I, I want to be able to retire with a, with a nice little cushion, you know. So, yeah, I think that's probably my goal, to make enough to where I could retire comfortably and, and just be a good family man. If, if you did move into another business, what do you see yourself doing? Um. I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I, I really like business. I've, I've invested in a few companies and stuff like that. I've, I've enjoyed the process. And now in, 
now that I got into the coaching, I've also enjoyed that. Um, I think I could do the coaching for a bit of for fun, to have something to do, something productive, something where I could give some value to the world and and make money at the same time. You know, I think that's the type of business that I like is something where I could help people and make a lot of money at the same time. So anything like in, in, in those terms, I, I will be able to do I'll, like I'll, I'll be happy doing, you know, I'll be comfortable. What are you doing when you're not playing poker? What are your other interests? Um, mostly relaxing with the with my girlfriend, with the family, couple friends, and yeah, mostly relaxing. I, I like to I like to stay at home a lot. I like to travel a lot, you know, like. But mostly to like, yeah, mostly to peaceful places. Like I'm, I'm not really the party type or or stuff like that. I like more like having nice dinners. Uh, going to places where you got to dress nice, you know, I like, I like that type of vibe. So these are the type of things I like to do, you know, going to nice restaurants. Yeah. Eating some good food, good company, like having some nice conversations. These are the kind of like the things that I, that I enjoy the most. You uh, used a lot of your tournaments in in your examples when we were talking about poker stuff. Is, is that most of what you're, playing is it mostly no limit like what is your what does your portfolio look like poker wise i actually think my best game is actually uh plo tournaments but there's not many every year so yeah i think mostly i focus on tournaments but i do get into a lot of the private games actually in the plo games because i give a lot of action you know so so yeah when i'm not playing tournaments i'll, I'll be in miami i got a few private games that i could play and some app games that i get invited to but I would say mostly tournaments. That's like what I enjoy the most. And that's where I think the most money is right now. Like, I think that cash games, if they're not private, they're pretty much dead. You know, I think that you got to study so hard to make a, to make a little bit. And it's just not it's not worth my time. Like, I'm not I'm not about that anymore. What is it about PLO tournaments that uh, you feel like, you know, gives give you an edge? Honestly, I. I don't, I don't really know, but I, I feel like I have a huge edge. I, I guess it's because I think that I'm, no, I think I'm pretty good at tournaments and I think that I'm pretty good at PLO at the same time. And I think that a lot of the Hold'em guys that kind of know PLO get into the, get into the PLO high stakes tournaments and they're actually at a big, big disadvantage. And I think, yeah, I think that I see spots way more clear. I think that yeah, I think I see everything more clearly than the rest, to be honest. And that's that's been kind of like my my success. I've been very successful in the PLO tournaments. Is there anything that you uh, learned from your baseball playing days that you feel like is shaping the way you think about poker, being a professional poker player, anything like that? Um, kind of like the winner attitude where, you know, in baseball, I really had to learn one very, very important lesson was learning how to lose. You know, I think we all know how to win, but learning how to lose was a big, big lesson in baseball, you know, and, and it's one that if you apply it correctly into poker, it could go a long way. You know, I think that, like I said, I think a lot of us are very good when we're winning, but we're not good at losing. You know, we're very good at complaining. And, and you know, sometimes I'm a victim of that too. So, like, I think it happens to all of us. But I think that, yeah, I think we should work a lot on, learning how to lose you know i think that very very important 
Nate's a big baseball fan, so I want to give him a chance before we we finish up. Nate, was there anything uh, baseball related you wanted to? <laughs> I, I I was curious. I mean, I I I like baseball. And, and maybe, yeah, maybe that's before, right. before you before you speak, um, it's crazy how disconnected I am from the from the mo- modern uh, baseball world. Actually, I used to know like every team, every player, but lately I can't even name two. So go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean that's that's interesting in its own right. But I, I was curious about. I mean, I was going to ask you about what you just said, like um, about taking the athlete mentality into poker. And we've had a lot of athletes on the show, and they all that w- would feel irresponsible to me. That's the wrong word, but like I remember one said, like, "Oh, there are all these changes happening." And they're probably going to cut my win rate for structural reasons, but I just need to focus on playing my own best game and, you know, the results will come. And I thought like, wow, I could never think that, but I bet that guy was a good athlete. (laughs) And uh, uh, it it sounds like that with you too, where like, you know, in baseball, there's a lot of formal results that players tend not to care very much about. (laughs) And, you know, playing your own game is like, very very important like they're you know th- throw throw the curveball if you think you can get the curveball over right now just to take some silly example um i guess more than the the, the ability to work for success like do, do you think you've taken the athlete mentality into poker yeah for sure i mean one one thing that uh that always resonates you know was one interview that i was watching from kobe bryant and he said, uh, he said one very important thing that I think us, all of us poker players should apply. And it's when, I guess he was at a finals or something, or maybe like playoffs anyways, like it was early in his career and he shot like six air balls in a row, you know, and it was like, it was a big game or it was a big spot in his life. And the person that was interviewing him was like, how, how'd you deal with that? You know, and he's like, well, number one, I, I had to really work on my legs. You know, I, I had to really get into the gym. You know, obviously I wasn't strong enough and my stamina wasn't good enough for, for, for that moment. So that was number one. But number two, the most important thing he said was, man, you got to get really, you got to get over yourself, you know, like get over yourself, brother. Like everybody thinks that you, you mess up in this big moment and now all of a sudden everybody's looking at you and everybody's judging you and this and that, but it's not really the reality. You know, I think that, us as poker players, we really need to get over ourselves. You know, I think that if you mess it up or if you have a lose, like a losing session or, or you do something completely wrong or you go broke completely doing bad decision after bad decision, just get over yourself, man. Like start brand new, you know, and, and, and realize that everything has a solution, you know, but you got to have that winner mentality and it applies to athletes for sure, but also like to poker, definitely, you know. So, yeah, I would say that when you're going through rough times or really good times that kind of blind you, like when it comes to game selection and stuff like that, also get over yourself, you know? So it applies to both. I think it was, uh, you know, Kobe was Kobe for a reason. I think uh, I really enjoy watching his interviews because he always says some, some golden words. And, and that was one that I could remember talking about that, ath- that, that elite athlete mentality where they're all like, they're all able to get over themselves, you know, because if you, if you're not able to do that, if you think that one little thing could really, you know, ruin you or, or, or take over your career, then you're not going to be good enough to make it in poker, in life, or an athlete, or in anything, you know. So, yeah, I think um, I think having that mentality is, is very, very useful, you know, when it comes to 
when it comes to crushing at the highest levels. You you kind of need that. I know this probably isn't exactly what you had in, in mind when you were saying that, but what I thought of, um, a fair number of the people that I coach are like kind of serious recreational players. And um, I guess there's probably some professionals who think this way as well. But, you know, people are so concerned about uh, like looking weak at the table or they kind of always think that the things that their opponents do are based on their perceptions of them. So it's like, oh, you know, he's probably raising me here just because he thinks I'm weak or, you know, I haven't played a hand in 20 minutes. And so, you know, everyone's going to be really tight if I open for a raise. And like, you know, most people, A, are not paying that much attention to what you're doing. And B, even if they are, it's just not the main thing shaping their decisions, right? Like most people are not just picking up seven deuce in middle position and saying like, oh, you know, that guy has folded his big blind three times in a row. So I'm just going to raise him with any two cards. You know, like it might, maybe at the margins, it makes a little bit of a difference, but I think a lot of people worry way too much that their opponents are kind of coming after them for very specific reasons. Or, you know, he's he's just raising the river because I bet small. Or he's if, if I check, he's going to bet because it's going to look weak. Yeah, I think people are you know, very concerned, just, just thinking that like everything that they do is what's driving their opponent's decisions rather than, you know, probably they're mostly making their decisions based on their cards and you're an afterthought if they're thinking about you at all. Yeah, exactly. I think in general, like, Obviously, I, I do pay a lot of attention to table dynamics, and you do, especially at the highest levels, you know, when, when, when like on a downswing as far as the tournament goes, you know, where you lost a big flip, kind of like you lost your momentum and stuff like that. People do feel that, and they do start kind of picking on you a bit. But in general, like, people are just playing their cards, man. Like, especially in the lower binds, like, nobody's really going after you. Like, people are just playing their cards, and unless they're they're giving you like an amazing reason to think that or they're doing it over and over and over kind of like just just realize that nobody like i said get over yourself man everybody just playing their cards you know so um i think it is important to pay, pay attention to table dynamics and i think it is very important to be aware of what image you know people think of you at the table for sure you know i think that that does induce some decisions and especially when it comes to marginal spots, you know, you might take it versus someone you see as a weak opponent, but you might avoid it against someone that you see as very strong. But in general, like you said, yeah, you're right, man. People are just playing their cards, you know. Well, is there anything you'd want to leave uh, listeners with? Recommendations, books, movies, music, reasons to travel to Colombia? Well, reasons to travel to Colombia, I mean, uh, yeah, I think that the quality of, li of life here is really really amazing you know i really recommend medellin i think the food is amazing the people are insane you know like just like really amazing energy and um i can say it from experience you know i have a few canadian friends that uh that i brought over who are a bit hesitant because they think that you know they think of, of back in the 80s the dangerous world and stuff like that but it's such a clean country now and, and the people are you know really really amazing people you know and I've actually met plenty of people who came here for a week and now have been here for seven years, you know, and yeah, I think it's like a, like a little hidden, hidden gem, you know, I think that especially Medellin is, is like a hidden gem, you know, I, I really like spending time here and, and it's easy to be happy here, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, I think it's just a beautiful place. I think it's definitely worth checking out. The whole country is amazing, but I'm from Barranquilla, but my favorite city is actually Medellin, and um, I would recommend it to anyone, but the whole country is really, really amazing. You know, I, I definitely recommend it. 
As far as movies, you know, I, I like the Denzel movies, uh, American Gangster and Training Day are some of my favorite ones. I actually, I, I also like the Django and Just Mercy with uh, Jamie Foxx. I think those those movies are amazing. But um, yeah, I'm not much of a, I don't watch too much TV and I don't, I don't really, I don't really spend too much time watching movies. But those are pretty amazing movies. As far as books, I'm reading a book with my girlfriend by Wayne Dyer called The Force of the Spirit. Well, we're reading it in Spanish. I think that's the translation, you know, The Force of the Spirit. And it, it basically talks about how there's a spiritual solution to every problem. And, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good read for sure. You know, I think that it's good to, to keep your, your spiritual life in check. You know, I think a lot of us are kind of like forget that area of, a life, of our life, you know. Sweet. Well, thanks so much for uh, for taking the time to talk to us and, and for reaching out to us. It was, uh, it was nice to meet you and yeah, wish you all the best at the uh, final table of the main event. <laughs> my pleasure, my brother. I invite both, both of you guys for the real. Hopefully you guys uh, test negative. That way I won't get this quality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pl- pleasure to meet you. Take care. Uh, pleasure. We'll be in touch. All right. Have a good night. of a car light of the fair passage of a bill and who will sign us into law I know you won't